Good morning again. It's a bit different this morning. Um, I had an idea for a topic and felt that when I, I just rewind a bit, when I start typing my sermon, I type the word ideas, colon, and then under that, I put out the ideas, I type them out, what I think um, God is talking to me about speaking. And one of the topics, the first one that I thought I was to speak on, um, the words that I typed out, I would have been, in a sense, taking those words and then finding scriptures to match those words, if you see what I'm saying. I'm not, it's not something God has shown me, it's not something that was already in scripture, it's something I had in my head that I would have been proving with verses I would have made match that topic. So I abandoned that and changed completely to something else, um, which I suppose lines up a little bit with the other one that I was thinking of, but it's, um, yeah, hopefully it's fun for everyone this morning. How much do you know about Lot and Abraham? On a scale of one to ten. Call out a number. Three. Four. Is people, one is the high number, right? Is that what we're saying here or the other way? <laughs> Just checking what scales are like the OP thing where the, high, the low number is good or is it? <laughs> Don't know. It's not something we read every day, is it? And mainly what I wanted to speak from was Genesis 18 and 19 this morning. That's where kind of the end of the sermon heads. But um, let's start at the beginning. Well, probably not the beginning, but the beginning of um, Abram. In Genesis chapter 11, we can read the list of Shem's descendants. So, <laughs> just got to turn it on, right? <laughs> it's not the dud batteries you threatened to put in there. <laughs> uh, I've clicked it on. There it goes. Who was Shem? A, the, the first son of Enoch. B, the creator of Shem Poo. C, the first son of Noah. D, the first son of Seth. C, the first son of Noah. You're right. There's no prizes, by the way. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> I'm all for positive reinforcement, but I didn't come prepared for that. <laughs> um, okay, so Shem, you'll remember, is one of Noah's three sons and is the firstborn. And if you add up the years listed in Shem's list of descendants in Genesis chapter 11, how many years after the flood was Abram born? <laughs> what do you mean, what? You guys read your Bible. Surely you sit there with your calculator like I do and add it all up. <laughs> so A, 403 years after the flood. B, 292. C, 671. Or D, 28. It's not D. Jill's going not D. Anyone else got anything to add? B, Tim's going B, Jill's going A, any others? C, <laughs> you've got to be right when you say one or the other, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. The answer is B, 292 years, approximately. Um, it's not going to be, well, approximately, like probably plus or minus 50 years, but none of the other answers there. Okay, so Abram was born approximately 292 years after the flood and his father's name was A. Terah, 
B, Bob. C, Nahor. Or D, Peleg. A. Anyone? This is the genealogy of Jesus you're talking about here. You should know this, right? Not to put any pressure on. <laughs> it's A, Terah. Terah. And who were Terah's sons? Obviously, you've got one already. In order, from oldest to youngest. Yeah, look at this. Haran, Nahor, Abram. Lot, Abram, Bill. Nahor, Abram, Lot. Or Abram, Nahor, Haran. I don't mess with your head. Half the names are the same. You going D? A? It's D. Abram was the firstborn, and then Nahor, and then Haran. This. That'll make it a bit easier. Okay, so if we read from Genesis chapter 11, 26 and 28, or 228, when Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. I actually looked up if they were triplets because it mentions all three at once. They are not triplets. There you go. They're the, all the scholars think that uh, like uh, Jacob and Esau were mentioned as twins and they think if there was triplets, someone would have written that down, basically. Shem, no, same thing, same thing. They're just important. They have lineages after them that are important. That's why they are recorded individually, but they're not triplets. That's the theory anyway. So, lucky Terah, he didn't have triplets. <laughs> now, these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. So we can see there that Abram's brothers were Nahor and Haran, Abram being the oldest of three. And Haran's, Haran was Lot's father, which makes Lot, how was he related to Abram? Pet cat? <laughs> C, nephew, well done, yes. So that makes Abram his uncle, Lot's uncle Abram. Um, and we can see that Haran died in the presence of his father, which means that Haran died before his father, Terah, died. And that means he died probably young, which also means that lost, Lot lost his dad. And if you re read the end of chapter 11, Lot wasn't married when Terah moved his entire family from Ur of the Chaldeans. So he was quite possibly still a quite a young boy or a young man. What happens in chapter 12? Did you think the questions were done? <laughs> God makes a covenant with Abram. Abram and Lot part ways. Abram gets a new hat. God tells Abram to move house. Is it D or B? I'm hearing B and D. You say, what are you saying, Tim? B. He's saying B. Jill's saying D. They sound very similar, those. I should have gone with different letters. Anyone else?
chapter 12, it's the turning point of Abram's life when God tells him to go somewhere and he doesn't know where. Pivotal moment when he faithfully follows what God asks him to do. God tells Abram to move house, not that he knows where he's actually going. So it's a great step of faith, isn't it, on Abram's part to obey God in setting out on that journey. So Abram went as the Lord had told him and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran and Abram took Sarai his wife and Lot his brother's son and all their possessions that they had gathered and the people that they they had acquired in Haran and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. So Lot still wasn't married at this point and Abram being the oldest son of Terah was quite possibly obligated to care for him and take him under his wing. So also it's good to note that here Lot is already being shown an example of faith. He's already being taken on a journey to who knows where because Abram is being obedient to God. So he can see that in Abram and would know about that, I would assume. He was included in a journey to some unknown place to be revealed by God when God was ready. So what happened in Genesis chapter 13? Hey, do you want to rethink your number between 1 and 10 by now? or Why do Abram and Lot part ways? A, Lot wanted to start a cafe. B, they couldn't get along with each other. C, God told them to go different ways. D, the land couldn't support them. <laughs> D, we're all, everyone's D. C, no, it's D, the land couldn't support them. They came to fisticuffs, well, not them personally. Where am I? Yeah, there's a bit of push and shove that goes on between their herdsmen by this time because the land couldn't support them. Um, I imagine that the scuffles are probably over water holes or where the grass was because they both had large herds and large flocks. Um, Their herdsmen were starting to have strife between them. The land, the Bible says, couldn't support them both. Um, Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, in the direction of Zor. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. (coughs) So after Lot moved out, And take note that he chose what was best for himself. He didn't hold back on, um, he didn't want Abram to have the best, I suppose, or he wanted it best for his herds and flocks. Um, He chose the best for himself. So he moved out and he ends up in Sodom. The Bible says that he moved his tent as far as Sodom. And then, after that, God tells Abram that even though Lot had chosen all that land, it's all going to be Abram's anyway at the end of the day and his offsprings. God would give him all of that. So in chapter 14, what does Abram do for Lot? Gives him a lot of sheep and cows, rescues him from enemies, convinces God not to destroy him, or goes and visits Lot's new cafe down in Sodom. (laughs) Yeah, 
Really, it's a multiple choice. Every question's a multiple choice out of three answers, really. <laughs> Hopefully. <laughs> a, C, I'm hearing different things. B? B, it is B, rescues him from enemies. He rescues Lot from being taken as a prisoner of war. Abram hears that his kinsmen were captured and so he went to rescue them. Oops. I didn't put the verse on the slide, sorry. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsmen, Lot, with his possessions and the women and the people. So we're not just talking about Abram and Sarai and Lot in a tent now, are we? Travelling around 318 trained men that were born in his house. They weren't people that he'd brought in or hired. Um, they were part of his family. The battle that Lot was captured in was a pretty significant battle. There was a lot of people involved in that. How many kings were involved in that battle? Five, two, nine, 37. That's not the right answer, 37. <laughs> C is the right answer, nine kings all up, four against five. The five kings were rebelling against one of the four kings who they'd served for 12 years. But the four kings won out. They won the battle and they carried off a whole lot of goodies and a lot of people, which is all the people of Sodom, where Lot was. And they took Lot and all of his family and all the things that were there. And then when Abram hears of that, he joins the fray and pursues and defeats the four kings and brings everyone back. So that's a pretty big deal, right? Because I had in my head, without thinking about this till that point, I had in my head that Abram kind of had a tent and a few sheep and cows and things. I didn't think when you hear of someone going up against four kings and their armies, that's, that's another level again. Abram's a pretty big deal, isn't he? And the things that he has and the people that he commands. So he's not just a guy going caravanning around in his tent. And after that, Abram is blessed by Melchizedek. Everyone's heard that name before, right? He's the high priest of Salem. In Genesis chapter 14, we can read there that he blessed him. Melchizedek blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything, which is where our tithe originates from. That th the theme of tithing. So here, God is given all the glory, isn't he? No one's saying, Abram is so great. Abram rescued me. Abram did this. Abram did that. God is given all the glory. God is the possessor of heaven and earth. God is most high. God is the one who delivered the enemies into Abram's hand. It's God all the way in everything. And over the next few chapters, Lot is living in Sodom and Abram has some pretty probably significant things happen in his life. God makes a covenant with Abram in chapter 15. In chapter 16, Abram's son Ishmael is born to Sarai's servant Hagar. In chapter 17, God changes Abram's name to Abraham and Sarai's name to Sarah. 
God promises that Abraham and Sarah will have a son and his name would be Isaac. God also makes a covenant of circumcision with Abram, Abraham and Abraham obeys God that very same day. He doesn't wait, doesn't make it suit himself or his plans. He goes about it the very same day. He's obedient. And now we come to chapter 18 where the Lord appears to Abraham. And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favour in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Three men appeared before him, one of which was the Lord. And what does Abram do? He runs, he runs to them. He doesn't say, I, from a distance, and stay at the front of his tent and wait for them to come over. He ran to them and he bowed all the way to the earth. Then he humbled himself before them in what happens next. In the next few verses, he goes quickly to Sarah and asks her to get some bread cooking, which I looked up the quantities of flour. It's about three kilos of flour, so I hope they like bread. It's a lot of bread, right? Anyway, he runs quickly to Sarah, gets her to get the bread cooking, then he runs quickly to the herdsman to get a calf ready to eat, and the herdsman got the calf ready quickly, and then Abram sets it all before the three men to eat. Rush, rush, rush. He runs, he goes quickly, everything is done quickly, all to serve the Lord and the men who were with him. And then Abraham, who remember, is not a small outfit, who is used to having a lot of people underneath him that he bosses around all day, He stands there while they eat, next to them, near them, stood by them while they eat. All of a sudden, he's a servant. He's waiting on them. He's waiting there in case they need anything. He's not running about and being crazy. He's waiting there just in case they need anything else. He doesn't assume that he can sit with them and be at their level. He doesn't even eat any of the food that he ran about preparing for them. He takes on the role of servant for the Lord and two men. And in the start of chapter 19, two of the men are called angels. And have you ever wondered if they had eaten meat before or bread? This is what goes through my mind when I read that Abraham runs around getting this stuff ready for them. If they were two angels, had they ever eaten earthly food before? That's what I ponder. I've wondered if they had to draw straws in heaven like everyone's cheering to go on this excursion from heaven to see what Abram's calf will taste like, you know. (laughs) I wonder if they did that. I wonder how that went down or whether they were naughty that day and had to be sent to earth for a bit. (laughs) Don't know. There's no answers. (laughs) Ponderings aside, I want you to take notice of how Abraham very quickly took on the role of servant to please the Lord, to bless him and to honour him, how he rushed about to serve him, how he didn't consider the cost, he didn't consider himself equal and how he gave generously and he waited on the Lord and the two men that were there. Also in chapter 18 is the record of Abraham interceding for Lot. As you might remember, the two angels were sent for a reason. Do you remember what that reason was? A, experience food on earth, (laughs) take away earth food, meet Abram and his wife, tell Abraham about his future, 
or destroy Sodom and Gomorrah? This is a pretty easy one. Come on, guys. D? Please say you know it's D. D. <laughs> the angels were sent to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. The Bible, the Bible says that God told Abraham that the outcry from Sodom and Gomorrah was very great. And I've wondered to myself too what that outcry is. The sin of, and wickedness of Sodom and Gomorrah was heard by God somehow. And I don't know if that's people out crying to him or whether just the sin, the evil and the wickedness makes a noise that God can hear. The outcry was very great and it was his, in his wrath he chose to destroy those two cities. And that's what the angels were there to do. Which, unfortunately for Lot, Sodom was where he lived, wasn't it? So Abraham, before the three men went their way, Abraham haggled with God, asking God if he would save the righteous in Sodom if he found 50 righteous people there. Or what about if you find 45 or 30? Or what about if you find 20? Or what about if you find 10? You know, he went right down to 10 over and over and over in a humble way, but still. Would God spare the righteous if only 10 people were there? And God says that he won't destroy Sodom if he finds 10 righteous people there. Genesis 18, this is the last part of his haggling. Then he said, Oh, let the, not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again but this once. Suppose 10 are found there. He answered, For the sake of ten I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. This is a fascinating dialogue for me to read. Abraham only moments ago was the waiter, the servant, the gopher. And now he's negotiating with God to try and save Lot and Lot's family. That's a pretty courageous move. Do you think you would be bold enough to haggle with God like that over and over getting him down to only 10 people i mean it's one thing to ask god for something isn't it but then to say well actually when i said 50 people i really meant 45 and then to go back to god again and say when i said 45 i think if if you could do it for 30 people that would be good and to do that over and over and over again seems well, i'm the kind of person that struggles overseas to haggle people on the price of the handmade goods they sell at the market though so it might be different for me but for some people that like that can you go to god and negotiate down to something god listens to abraham doesn't he that's very important i think to notice that god heard what he said and he listened and then we get to chapter 19 the chapter where sodom and gomorrah are destroyed and we've seen several things about abraham his faith and his obedience to God, how he honours God and how he does what God asks him straight away, how he's humble yet he's courageous, how he looks out for his kinsmen over and over and over it seems and now we get to see who Lot has become in Genesis chapter 19. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. So Lot doesn't 
run to them, does he? Like Abraham did, for one thing. He rose to meet them, though, and he bowed his face all the way to the earth. And then he invites them to stay in his house for the, for the night, which is a polite thing to do in that day and age, in that culture. If there were people coming through the city, you were supposed to, if you were kind and a peaceful person, invite them into your house and have them stay. The town square was typically not the place to stay because that's where all the, the rubbish people hang out. That's all the riffraff hangs out there at night. And I'm pretty sure Lot was all too familiar with the kind of people that lived in Sodom. And in the next few verses after this verse, he presses them strongly to stay at his house so that they don't get to experience what the town square is like at night, I assume. When they're back at his house, he makes a feast and they eat. And then they prepare to go to bed, but then the night goes downhill, doesn't it? If you remember the story, all the men of the town, the Bible says, all the men, small and great, come to the door at Lot's house and ask for these two men to be sent out to them. <coughs> but Lot goes out. He goes outside and shuts the door behind him and says to the men, oh, it says that there, Lot went out to, out to the men at the entrance shut the door after him and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Lot tries to plead with them, but they don't listen. Have you ever had to speak up and try to prevent one person's wickedness? Had to speak out against something that they were going to do or something they were going to choose and say, that, that's not a good option, that's wrong, you can't do that. Have you ever had to do that for one person? go up against one person what about a few people I remember when I did work experience for TAFE um, I was um, doing one day a week in a workshop and there was a tradesman there and there was an apprentice working there as well and then there was me on work experience from TAFE and then for a short time we had a work experience guy from school and he was grade 10 or around that age um, and on his last day one of the, the, either the tradesman or the apprentice wanted to do something to him, which is kind of old-fashioned kind of initiation rights for people to treat work experienced people or apprentices like that, which these days is considered bullying, which really it is. A lot of it is really not right. But they asked me, it kind of got to the point where they were talking about what they would do and then they asked me, what do I think? And <laughs> I could see the face on this young guy and he was petrified, you know, and it, I was convinced that if I said, yeah, yeah, let's do that, they would have gone ahead with their plan. But I said, no, I don't think that's the right thing to do. And it dissolved and they did nothing. How do we stand up for wickedness? Now, that guy, that young guy at school age, might never have gone into that trade or field or anything because of what might have happened to him. You know, that damage would have been done to him because of two people that wanted to do something stupid something that was wicked and not in his interest do we stand up against wickedness go outside the door and shut it after us so that we are by ourselves there and do we stand up against that lot gave it his best shot i suppose but the people didn't listen did they and what did the angels do to the men outside the door did they a cause them to be confused b made them all speak different languages C, made them blind, or D, sprayed them with the hose. <laughs> C, made them blind. Good. This is good. People are answering quicker now. This is good. Maybe it's the more memorable part of the story. The angels 
pull Lot in and they cause the men to be, go blind um, and it says that they grope all night tiring themselves out trying to find the door. <clears throat> so then what happens? The angels tell Lot that the city is to be destroyed and they tell him to round up all his people. So what does Lot do? He goes and tells his future son-in-laws, sons-in-law, two of them, one for each of his daughters, that the city is going to be destroyed but they think he's joking. They think he's making it up. They don't listen to him. Do you hear what other people say to you sometimes and they say, God told me this or God told me that? And then you think, nah, <laughs> that's ridiculous. I mean, that's what these people did. How do we know what truths God has spoken to other people, I guess? I mean, for these guys, that ended really badly for them. The truth sometimes seems well outside our usual box of thinking, doesn't it? Not all the time does the truth make sense and we have to trust in God. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him, and they brought him out and set him outside the city. They literally had to seize Lot and take him outside the city. This really stood out to me when I read through this. He lingered. He lingered there. The city was about to be destroyed and he lingered. Why would he linger? Why would he do that? In a city full of wickedness that he was very... He knew what those people were like. Why would he linger? There was a time when I was in a class full of riffraff. There was class 7A, B, C and D and D was where all the people got put that we never went on any excursions, let's put it that way. And I had one teacher come to me one time while I was in that class saying, you should move to a different class because these people are pulling you down. And I said, why? They're my friends. And I stayed in that class and my father did have to have discussions about my grades <laughs> and I did get to experience some very eventful things. Um, but they were my friends, so I didn't, I didn't want to be removed from that space, even though, in theory, they were the worst people in the grade, some of those people. They did stupid things, angry things. I stayed in that class. I lingered when I could have been more, I suppose, in a different setting or had better friends that wouldn't pull me down, friends that weren't so well known to police. <laughs> you know, like that, <laughs> I could have been at a different circle and had a different experience and maybe escaped some of my father's anger towards my grades. You know, I could have, life would have taken a different path for me, but I chose to linger because of my friends. And I wonder if Lot lingered because he knew people in that city. When the angels come to the city, he was at the city gate, which is where people sit and talk and discuss and debate in that day and age. So he had friends. He might have been well known in that city. I don't know. He did. Yep. So why would he linger still? I mean, it's, it's death or it's leaving. It's not friends in your class in grade seven even, you know. It's a big deal. And then once he gets outside the city, once they take him outside, the angels say, flee to the hills. 
But he didn't want to do that either. He was scared he'd be destroyed if he ran to the hills, so he asked them if he could go to a nearby city instead. And as they brought them out, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, Oh, no, my lords. Behold, your servant has found favour in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life, but I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtakes me and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to, and it is a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. He said to him, Behold, I grant you this favour also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. (laughs) It just seems ridiculous to me in my mind. Escape for your life. Don't stop or look back. Just get away as quickly as you can out of the valley to the hills. Nah, I'd really rather stay in the valley in a city that's closer to run to. What does it even matter if it's a small one or not? Why does he even mention that? I, don't, I just don't understand why he would choose to do that. If the angels say to get out of the valley, why stay? If the angels are destroying big cities, why would you run to one that's nearby that's a little one? That quite potentially was the original plan to be flattened as well because people overflow from city to city, don't they? The wickedness would have been there as well. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. Now Lot went up out of Zor and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zor. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters. This guy, yeah, see Adam's shaking his head. (laughs) He's one of those people. You wouldn't be his friend, would you? (laughs) God remembered Abraham and God saved Lot. In his mercy, God saved Lot. And remember how God and Abraham were negotiating down to ten righteous people. In the end, it was only four. And yet God was still merciful still honoured his agreement with Abraham to be merciful to Lot. And Lot, he ends up leaving the small city that he asked to flee to. And why would he do that? Because he was scared. And the place that he went to was exactly the same place the angels told him to go to in the first place. He was afraid to live in the city, most likely because he was afraid it was going to end up being very burnt, like Sodom and Gomorrah, that it would be destroyed as well. So apparently the angels did know what they were talking about in the first place. Why is it that we don't do God's will the first time around? Why do we have to make it or colour it our way so that it's more pleasing for us to go about doing God's will? Only to come full circle and back to God's will in the end to say, well, this is actually the best idea. I wonder why we do that. And that's Lot and Abraham in a very quick nutshell. Maybe you can remember some more trivia for next time around. But what do we get from this? What do we learn? Abraham was faithful, wasn't he? When the Lord showed up, he jumped up and scurried about as quickly as he could to honour and bless him. He served. He waited on the Lord. If the Lord asked him to do something, he did it straight away. He didn't linger. 
And yes, he made a few mistakes along the way, but he trusted God and he feared God and was obedient to God. Abraham was also loyal to his family and he went well out of his way to save Lot and his family. Whereas Lot was not the same, was he? Despite having his uncle Abraham as an example, for a long time he still didn't really fear the Lord. He served the angels, he blessed them and he honoured them right up until they told him to leave. Then he lingered in a place of wickedness and wanted to do the fleeing on his own terms. He didn't just simply obey as Abraham would have. Abraham had a faith that God was leading him somewhere and God had a plan for all that he went through. Do you trust God's plan? Do you, do you dig your heels in when the current seems to be trying to drag you away? And do you then pursue God more than you were before and again renew your trust in him for his plan and his promises? no matter what happens. Abram's family was stuck in Sodom. He had to trust that God would do as he said and save them. Do you remove yourself from wickedness? When God prompts you that it's wrong or do you negotiate with him and do it your way or do you hurry and be quick to be generous to the Lord and bless him when God prompts you to give or to go or to speak to someone or to worship him or read your Bible instead of watching TV do you do it immediately or do you hesitate kind of wanting it to be both ways your way and his way so that you have his blessing and you can enjoy yourself at the same time kind of thinking. Do you say to God, I'll only watch TV for a little while and then I'll read my Bible. It's just a little city after all. Jill spoke last week about listening for God's voice. Are you listening to God's voice or the other voices that are around you that grab your attention more than what God's voice does? If you don't listen, you'll never hear. And if you don't hear, how can you do what God is asking you to do? And what about family? No doubt for your kids or your spouse, you would do as much as you could to save them. But how far does that reach? Your nephew, like Lot was Abraham's nephew. Your grandparents, your grandchildren, your friends, your church family. Christians all over the world, do you intercede on their behalf? Are you prepared to go and rescue them, like Abraham did to Lot? I guess the real question is, like Abraham, do you fear God? Do you put him first? Really put him first? Do you run to meet him? If you don't do those things, like Lot, what do you fear? if you don't fear God. Leaving what you know behind, like Lot had to do. Being uncomfortable, who wants to live in a cave instead of a small city. Destruction, who or what do you put before God? Who do you run to? What do you run to, if not God? God has all that we need, everything. 
He has all you need for every single day of your life. He knows who you are. All we need to do is seek him, trust him. It's his plan. He knows the plan. It's just that sometimes we don't know the plan and we can't see where the next step is or we can't see what next week holds or next year. But he knows the plan because it's his plan. We just need to listen. We need to love each other. We need to love our neighbours as ourselves. We need to seek God and his will for us. And I'm thinking more and more that God's will, when we seek it, we don't ask God, what is your will? And then wait for him to deliver some kind of itinerary for us to do that day. We have to walk with God all day, every day. We have to trust in him when we step out into driving to work. When we go to talk to someone, we have to trust him. God may not give you a full list of things to do that day, but he might tell you in the next five minutes to go and speak to someone here. And we need to be ready to do that. We need to trust that he will work through that. We need to say, God, help my unbelief. I trust that you will work through my obedience and go and do that simple thing that he asks us to do. That's walking with God. And then if we do those things, we're doing his will. His will is not this big, shiny, golden platter kind of thing that's handed to us. People like Abraham had things told him ahead of time. We don't always get that. Life can be very, very spontaneous if we trust in God and do the things that he wants. But we need to listen, don't we? And we need to fear him enough to do it. We need to be obedient, no matter the cost. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are so big. And God, you have plans for each of us, God, in our lives, in our daily lives. You have things that come across our path. And sometimes, God, you will say, go and talk to that person. Sometimes, God, you will say, pray for that person. Sometimes, God, you'll say, invite that person over for dinner. Sometimes you'll say, give them all the money in your wallet. God, you have these things for us to do and sometimes they are as simple as a smile. And sometimes they are really not that simple, God. But it's you, God, that asks us to do these things and it's you who are within us that works through us as we make these simple steps or difficult steps, God, you work through us. It's your strength that comes through us. It's your life that lives through us. Your glory that's seen through us as we walk with you. God, help our unbelief. Help us, God, to focus on you and to pursue you, to fear you above all else. Because, God, your plan is for our benefit. And for other people's benefit, God, you want to bless us with your promises and you want all the people of this world to have the same thing because you love each of us, God, so abundantly love us. Help us, God, to see the lost around us. Help us to look out from our places of comfort. Help us, God, to not be afraid to do things differently, to leave behind what we know or to be uncomfortable, God. Help us not to fear those things, God, but to fear losing you, 
not having your promises, not having your blessings. Help us to fear God that someone else may go to hell because we don't open our mouths in obedience. God, help us to trust you for this next part of our journey, for the rest of today, for next week, for this coming year, the rest of what's left of it. God, help us to put our trust in you and to believe, choose to believe in you in all things. Help us, God, to think of you when we make choices and to do the things that you want, God, when you speak to us. I pray that you would take these words, God, and remind us of Lot and Abraham and how differently they approached being obedient to you. Remind us, God, this week when we do things, when we have decisions and choices ahead of us, God, help us to pray first, to ask you first, and to listen, even briefly, for your voice. Help us, God, to be your people, your holy people, called by your name. Help us to live that way on this earth, God, so that others can come to know you and your kingdom can grow. Thank you, God, again for all that you give to us, the abundance that you have given to us, and I pray that this coming week you would help us to live for you, to walk with you in everything that we do. In Jesus' name, amen.